A big welcome to all of you to Fellowship Nashville. It's good to see all of you here. It's also good to have all of you joining us online as we continue our sermon series, which we've entitled with one word. And what is that one word? Believe. Believe. And the reason why we've only used one word to describe this sermon series is that's what John uses to describe this book the purpose of why he's writing. At the end of the book, as we've already pointed out many times, he says, I've written these things so that you may believe, and that by believing, you might find life in his name, believing in Jesus, that is. And I don't know about you, but I have thoroughly enjoyed this study through the Gospel of John. This book is a literary masterpiece. It really is. It's a carefully painted portrait of Jesus with incredible intricacy, detail, and thematic beauty. And, you know, if you know me, you wouldn't exactly describe me as cultured, okay? I'm, I'm still fairly uncultured, but I have grown in my appreciation of good works of art over the years. Just a few weeks ago, um, my eldest daughter, Ellie, and I drove to Jackson, Mississippi, where she was participating in an audition at Bellhaven University for their um, dance program. She's a ballet dancer and um, was applying to Bellhaven for admission into their, their dance program. And we visited on an arts discovery day. Um, it was a day set up for prospective students like Ellie, for, for them to um, showcase their giftedness, but also for the school of dance there to showcase their students, to show off a bit. And um, I'll, I'll, uh, we were right in the middle of one of their performances. Um, I can't remember if it was contemporary or ballet, but I don't know what it was. I mean, it was a mixture of both. But it was set to worship music. And as I was watching it, I began to tear up. I was like, why am I doing this? And, you know, as I reflected on why later, I began to think, you know, the reason why I teared up is that that dance was a reflection of the very creativity of God. It, it was an artistic expression that was beautiful. It was ordered. It was put together. And it made my heart long for the day when all things will be made new. You know, there's a lot of brokenness and disorder and ugliness in the world, isn't there? Isn't there? But one day, one day, Jesus will return as promised, and he'll take all of that, recreate everything, make all things new and beautiful and ordered and put together once again. And so I think that's why I teared up, because that artistic expression of dance was a reflection of the very creativity of God. And that creativity will once, once again be displayed when Jesus comes back. So even though you probably won't catch me going to the Frist Art Museum on Friday nights for fun, I have begun to grow in my appreciation of good works of art and, and how they can grab the emotions, engage the heart, and make us long for what's coming when Jesus comes in his kingdom and brings it to fruition in its fullness. And I think that's also why I've enjoyed studying the Gospel of John. 
because it's a work of art. It's a work of art. John's an amazing artist with words and themes, and as he weaves them together to, to paint a beautiful portrait of King Jesus and his glory and who he is and his identity. For example, at the end of chapter 5, we, we read that Jesus is talking about Moses, and he said, for if you believed Moses, you would also believe me, for he wrote of me. And John, like an artist, then takes all of chapter 6, and, and he shows Jesus teaching from a mountainside like Moses did, and, and Jesus providing food for a multitude in the wilderness like Moses did, and, and crossing this sea, bringing his followers to safety like Moses did, and, and he's showing that, that Jesus, the fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to, through 18, is a prophet like Moses, the new and better Moses. In fact, Jesus walked on top of the water. He didn't have to pass through it. You know? So he's painting this picture. And, and when Jesus feeds the 5,000 in John chapter 6, it leads right into what? The bread of life discourse. Jesus is the bread come down from heaven. He's the bread of life. Thematic beauty. The unity and the beauty of the book is astounding. A another theme that, that uh, John dips his paintbrush in and, and paints with broad strokes throughout the book is the theme of light. You may have noticed it by now. It, it, we find it right from the get-go in the, in the book. In John chapter 1, we read this. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. And then the theme of light is revisited in John chapter 3, a very famous chapter where we read this. The light has come into the world, the people, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so right here we begin to see that we should expect different responses to the light. Some are drawn to the light and others are repelled by it. And that's developed further. So when we come to John chapter 8, where Jesus boldly declares during the Feast of Tabernacles, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. It's be expected that we're going to see different responses to that statement, to that declaration of his identity. Some people are going to lean in. Some people are going to believe. Some people are going to have their eyes opened to the light, while others are going to be blinded by the light. They shut their eyes to Jesus, reject his identity, reject who he says he is. And as we come to chapter 9 today, John is going to be further developing this theme, further painting this picture the theme of light, artistically using the words and works of Jesus to reveal who he is. And in this chapter, we're going to see the light of the world come into contact with a man who can see no light. What's going to happen when you bring these two, these two people together? You excited? I am. But before we jump in, let's pray and ask for insight as we study. God, would you reveal to us through your word what you would have us see this morning? Open our eyes to the light that we may believe 
and have life in his name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever played the game Two Truths and a Lie? Okay, let me see a show of hands. Don't be shy. Okay, quite a few of you. It's a fun game. It's usually played in groups where you're just getting to know each other and you're trying to find out details about each other and everybody comes up with three facts about themselves, two of which are true and one of them is just baloney, okay? And um, you're playing that game and it's fun and you laugh about what's true and what's not and um, you try to be creative with the lie. Well, we're going to play two truths and a lie this morning, in a way. It's our outline, okay? So if you're taking notes, all you have to remember is what? Two truths and a lie, except in this game, I'm going to actually be telling you what the lie is, so you don't have to go away wondering which one of my three points is heretical, okay? So uh, let's dive in. You know, at the end of chapter 8, we find Jesus making a hasty exit from the temple. People have just picked up stones to stone him, and he's like, okay, I'm out. And and so he leaves with his disciples, and most likely at the beginning of chapter 9, he's walking through the streets of Jerusalem, perhaps hastily getting away from the temple, and that's where we pick up the narrative. So let's dive in. Chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So as Jesus is walking away from the temple, he observes a man along the side of the road. In verse 8, we're going to learn this guy's a beggar, so he's likely begging beside the side of the road. He's overlooked by most, but he's seen by Jesus. And the disciples, as they're tagging along with their disciples, with Jesus trying to keep up, they follow the gaze of their rabbi, and what do they see? They see the same guy, and a question forms in their mind, and I don't know who verbalizes it, probably Peter, he's the one who always opens his mouth to stick in the other foot, but um, one of them asks the question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, the disciples are making an assumption here, aren't they? They're presuming that this man's blindness is a punishment from God. They believe that there's some kind of cosmic reason for it. Either he is being punished for his own sin, or perhaps his parents have sinned and deserved a blind son. Either way, the disciples are espousing and you know, repeating a philosophy that we now call karma, right? Karma. You get what you deserve in life. They presume that this man must have received his blindness because of either something he did wrong or his parents did wrong. He's blind because there's been a moral failure of some sort. But look at Jesus' answer. It was not that this man sinned or his parents. Guys, you've got this completely wrong. You're way off base here. This man is not blind because of his sin or his parents' sin. Yes, he's blind, but, but not because he or his parents have been bad. Your presuppositions are faulty. You're believing a lie here. You cannot make a direct connection between personal suffering and personal sin. In other words, the world does not operate on a system of karma. So for those of you taking notes, here's the lie in our two truths and a lie game, okay? Here's the lie. This is heretical. (laughs) The world operates on a system 
of karma. The world operates on a system of karma. You get what you deserve, good or bad. Now, it's true. Let me make a little caveat here. It's true that all suffering in the world can ultimately trace back to sin. If Adam had not sinned in the garden, there would be no suffering. So you can make a general connection between the original sin and generic suffering, and all suffering is ultimately due to human sin. The biblical term for this is the curse, the curse. It's what describes all the brokenness and the disease and the pandemics and the natural disasters that we, we see in the world today that cause human suffering. But what we must not do, my friends, is draw a direct line from human suffering or human sin to human suffering. Or per, I'm sorry, personal sin to personal suffering. That's not the curse, that's karma. And Jesus is exposing karma as a lie that's straight from the pit of hell. That's why if you ever um, watch or watching TV and a televangelist comes on and, and tries to make the connection, you know, the reason that, that you're sick is you just don't have enough faith. You can be sure that that guy's speaking with a forked tongue, okay? The reason why life's not going well for you is you must not be doing something right. You know, when I hear stuff like that, it, it it makes me spitting mad. <laughs> I'm reminded of, I think my second daughter has gotten this characteristic from me. <laughs> you know, there was, when she was about four, um, she was trying to verbalize um, anger she was feeling, and, and she, she, over a perceived injustice in her mind, and she said, she was talking to her mom, and we wrote it down so we wouldn't forget it. You know, she do that. If you have small kids, write down the cute things they say and when they said it, because you'll come back and visit it later and laugh at it. We love you, Mia. Um, <laughs> but uh, she said, Mommy, when I hear things like that, it makes my tummy want to fight and hurt people. <laughs> you know, it's like, Ugh. you know, so, so when I hear stuff like, the reason you have cancer is because you must have sin in your life. It makes my tummy want to fight and hurt people. It's a lie straight from the pit of hell. It really is. The world simply does not operate on a system of karma. To think that it does is to believe a lie. And Jesus says here, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We're about to see that this man's blindness is not a punishment. What is it? It's a platform for God. It's not a punishment. It's a platform. And the disciples looked at this guy, and they just made the assumption, God must be finished with him. But when the light of the world looks at him, he knows that this is just the beginning of God working in him and through him. It's beautiful. I'm excited. Okay, verse 4. Jesus goes on to say, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. See the theme of light being woven back in here? The phrase, I am the light of the world, coming up again. Here we see a reiteration of 
Jesus as the light of the world. And he's insinuating here that there will come a day when he's going to leave the world and it will be night. But right now he's here and it's day. And what time is it? It's time for the works of God to be done. Well, what works? The works that Jesus has just talked about that are going to be displayed in this man's life. And just like Jesus multiplied the bread in the wilderness and then showed that he was the bread of life, Jesus is about to heal a blind man to demonstrate that he is indeed the light of the world. Do you see the artistic picture that John's painting here? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Verse 6, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Ooh. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, double ooh, and, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So Jesus restores this man's sight, doesn't he? The light of the world has opened this man's eyes to the light. But the manner in which he does this is rather curious, isn't it? We've already seen in the gospel that Jesus can heal from a distance. He doesn't need to, to put mud on this guy's eyes. He could have just said the word and healed him. He could have snapped his fingers and the guy would have had perfectly restored sight. But he doesn't use that method here, does he? What does he do? He spits in the dirt, but enough to make mud in the dust with the saliva, mixing it together. He takes that, he rubs it on the guy's eyes, and then he tells him to go wash. If this doesn't create a gag reflex in you, you know, something's wrong with you, you know? It's yuck, yuck. Why does, on earth does he do this? Seems kind of gross. Well, the short answer is we don't really know, but we, we do have some good educated guesses, okay? It's good educated guesses. Um, I, I want to give you four insights as to why Jesus did this, does this. Three of them I gleaned from a good friend of mine named Philip Miller, who's a pastor, um, and whose insights I've actually leaned on fairly heavily for this message. Reason number one, a theological reason, theological reason. What Jesus does here is actually evocative of creation itself. Remember what happens in Genesis chapter 2? How does God form life? Out of the dust of the ground. So right from the beginning of the biblical narrative, you have the creator working in the mud, in the dust, forming life. So this method of healing is somewhat of an echo of the fact that Jesus is who? Jesus is the creator that we read about at the beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And here he is recreating something that's broken. So there's a theological reason. Number two, there's a compassionate reason. Keep in mind this guy's blind. Can he see anything? No, no. But he can hear. He can feel. This is a personal touch. Jesus taking mud and putting it on his eyes. It's a tactile experience. The guy, he's engaging with what the communication that this guy can understand. Number three, there's a theological reason, compassionate reason. Thirdly, and this might be the dominant one, there's a provocative reason as well. Jesus did this because it was against the law to do it, at least the pharisaical understanding of the law. 
You see, the Pharisees had developed many applications to the prohibition against work on the Sabbath. We're about to learn in the text that this happened on a Sabbath day, okay? But one of the prohibitions that the, the Pharisees had come up with in applying the, lie, the law, don't work on the Sabbath, was you can't knead dough, in other words, make, make bread on the Sabbath. You can't knead dough. That's work. Well, guess what the Greek word is for mud here? It's the same word as dough, all right? And so um, since this healing occurred on the Sabbath, perhaps Jesus is being provocative here. Perhaps he's intending to stir up a little controversy, purposely breaking the law, the Pharisaical law or interpretation of the law against kneading dough to create a polarizing effect of the light. I think that has a lot to do with it, and we're about to see that polarizing effect in our text. So there's the provocative reason. Fourthly, so there's a theological reason, compassionate reason, a provocative reason. Fourthly, a practical reason. Where was Jesus just coming from? The temple. What had happened in the temple? People were picking up rocks, getting ready to stone him, right? Jesus does this miracle in a, in a manner as to lay low and not draw attention to himself. If he had healed that man's eyes right there. Guess what would have happened? People around would go, oh, look, he's got a sight. And then a crowd would have been forming. But instead, what does he do? He just puts mud on the guy's eyes. People are going, oh, gross. And then he tells the guy to leave. And so the guy leaves, goes and washes the mud off. His sight is restored. That probably creates a little bit of a hubbub at the pool of Siloam. But where's Jesus? He's conveniently not on the scene anymore, right? So that's a practical reason. Well, let's pick the story back up in verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is, not, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. This must be his doppelganger. <laughs> he kept saying, I'm the man. I'm the man. And they said to him, then how were your eyes open?" And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went, I washed and received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? And he said, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So this man can finally see, but Jesus is nowhere to be seen. And his neighbors with perfectly good sight can't believe their eyes. The irony here is almost comical. And obviously, this miraculous healing creates a bit of a hubbub. It draws a crowd. It's big news, too big to be contained. So we read in verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud, kneaded the dough, and opened his eyes. Dun, dun, dun. We know what's going to happen here, right? <laughs> so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. <laughs> Makes it really plain and clear. <laughs> Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. Notice here the differing responses to this polarizing miracle. On one hand, you have some of the Pharisees in a tizzy and blowing a gasket about Jesus making mud, kneading dough on this Sabbath day. He's a sinner. This man is not from God. And on the other hand, 
you have people saying, wait a minute, a sinner couldn't do such a miraculous sign. Obviously, the power of God is with this man, Jesus. So if he's not a sinner, who is he? Could this be? Could this be the Messiah? And the light is beginning to shine. We see some being drawn to that light, and we see others being repelled by the light of the world. Which leads us to the first of two truths. And what was our outline this morning? Two truths and a lie. We've covered what? The lie, which means we've got two truths left. Here's truth number one to discover in our passage. The light of the world is beautiful to some, but blinding to others. Say that out loud with me. The light of the world is beautiful to some, but blinding to others. I'm reminded here of the old proverb which says, the same sun which melts the ice hardens the clay. The hearts of the Pharisees are being hardened here, aren't they, by the light? Ironically, their eyes are being blinded to the light of the world. The light of the world is beautiful to some, but blinding to others. So here John wants us to notice the the fact that not only has this blind man been given physical sight, he's also starting to see things from a spiritual perspective. Let's look at verse 17. Verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said what? He is a prophet. So this guy's eyes have just, physical eyes have just been opened. Now his spiritual eyes are being opened and he's still seeing things a little bit fuzzy, spiritually speaking, but he's starting to make the connection, isn't he? You know, this guy healed me. He he restored my sight. So at the very least, he must be a prophet sent from God. And the religious leaders are not going to try to counter this guy's argument here, his logic, because it's impossible to counter. But they don't want to believe in Jesus. They've already rejected him. This creates a sticky situation for them. How, how can they wiggle off the hook here and still accuse Jesus of being a sinner when he just did this miraculous sign? Perhaps, perhaps they can discredit the guy's testimony. Let's call some witnesses in and, and prove that he's lying about this whole charade. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and he received his sight, until they called the witnesses, the parents of the man who, who had received his sight, and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? See how they're attacking credibility here? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He'll tell you. He will speak for himself. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So so this man's parents are called as witnesses, and, and they're not exactly the model of courage and boldness, are they? You know, they, they're shrewd enough to know that if they stick up for their son here, 
they're likely going to get in trouble with the religious authorities. So what do they do? In an attempt to save their own skin, they kind of cop out. They, they, they throw their son under the bus and say, he's of age, ask him. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. Tell the truth, in other words. We know that this man is a sinner. He's a Sabbath breaker. And the blind man answered, he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have already told you, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciples also? <laughs> I love this. <laughs> this healed man gets a little bit sarcastic with them here, most likely, or maybe a lot sarcastic. He sniffs out <laughs> what's really going on. They're not trying to discern the truth. He can tell they're just trying to, to get him to admit that he was lying, to discredit his story somehow, to dismiss the miracle, wiggle off the hook, justify their self-righteous hatred of Jesus. And this guy has only had a sight for a few hours, and yet he's seeing things crystal clear. He's seeing right through what the religious leaders are trying to do here. And likely with a cheeky tone and a smirk on his face, he asks, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I love it. I love it. Verse 28. And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Now, boldness and courage must have skipped a generation with this guy's parents, but it landed squarely on the shoulders of this former blind man, because look at what he says next. Verse 30, an amazing reply. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. This has never happened before. In other words, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing boldness, courage. And there's so much irony here because while this guy is now seeing the reality about Jesus plainly, the spiritual leaders seem to be blind to the obvious. The Pharisees should have been the ones who were able to see things clearly, but instead they're being blinded by the light, aren't they? Over and over again in the Old Testament, the blind receiving sight was a prophecy concerning the coming messianic age. And these religious leaders who had their Old Testaments memorized are totally missing the spiritual significance of this very moment. They should have recalled passages like Psalm 146, 7 through 8. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. So who's Jesus? Isaiah 29, 18, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the 
blind shall see. And now here is Jesus on the scene opening the eyes of the blind. What does that mean? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. And the spiritual leaders are totally missing it. They have perfectly good physical vision, but they're spiritually blinded. And in their spiritual blindness, they begin to rebuke the man who can now see. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. So since they can't counter the guy's logic, they make the classical political move that people in power often make and start viciously attacking the man's character in order to discredit his testimony. You were born in utter sin. We weren't. You were. And then the text tells us the Pharisees cast him out. That's an important detail that we can't gloss over, okay? What does that mean? They cast him out. Here's what it means. He's basically been excommunicated from the synagogue. Keep in mind, this whole society revolves around the synagogue. He's been totally cut off from his community. He is now persona non grata. You don't associate with him now. He's officially an outcast. His previous friends and family and support network will now have nothing to do with him. Okay? They won't do business with him. They won't help him in any way. They won't invite them into their homes. They won't help him. Why? For fear that the religious leaders will see them doing that, associating with an outcast, and then cast them out too and cut them off. And what comes next in the text is one of the reasons why I love Jesus so much. In fact, I... When I was studying this, preparing my message, I teared up while I was contemplating what went on here. And I was on the couch with my laptop. Meredith was sitting across the room from me, and, I'm, and she's like, what's wrong with you? And, but it, it, this is why I am so drawn, so drawn to Jesus. What does he do here? This man had just been, this man had just been given the incredible gift of physical sight. But he's just experienced probably the most overwhelming loss in his entire life. He's used to not having sight, but he's not used to not having friends, family, support. Overwhelming loss. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't leave him to fend for himself. No, he seeks him out. He finds him. This guy, remember, this guy has no way to find Jesus. He doesn't even know what he looks like. But Jesus finds him. Let's read. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Keep in mind, this guy doesn't know who Jesus is. He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He's ready to believe. And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. Past tense, interesting. You have seen him. He hasn't seen him yet, but he probably knew the prophecies. He was probably anticipating the Messiah. He had seen him in the Old Testament. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. 
Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus reveals himself to this former blind man that he had healed. And the man says, Lord, Lord, I believe. I believe and worships Jesus. And in the book of John, this is the clearest depiction, the clearest declaration and confession as to who Jesus is. Jesus uses his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Did you notice that in this text? The Son of Man. That's, that's a direct reference from the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 that talks about this figure who will receive all glory, all honor, all authority over all nations. The Son of Man. And here he is. And this is also the first time in the gospel that someone bows down and worships Jesus as the Son of God. So not only does this man see, he sees. He sees. No one ever has seen Jesus as clearly as this man does. He goes from total blindness to crystal clear vision in a matter of hours. Isn't this amazing? The light of the world has opened this man's eyes to the light. And the light is beautiful to him. The irony here is that the religious leaders who are seeing the very same evidence at the very same time, the very same light, are being blinded rather than finding it beautiful. Verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, this world, that those who do not see my who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. The light is beautiful to some but blinding to others. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The blind man sees, but the seeing are blind. And there is no greater blindness than that which insists it can see when it cannot. Two truths and a lie. We've covered what? The lie. One truth. What does that leave us? We've got one truth left, and here it is. Truth number two. In order to see, you must acknowledge your blindness. Say that with me. In order to see, you must acknowledge your blindness. This man who's been blind from birth knows he's blind. He, he recognizes his need, not just physically, but also spiritually. And that's why he was so quick to put his faith in Jesus as the light of the world. Now, not just as a person who can heal his physical eyes, but the first person who can heal his soul. Who can bring him out of darkness physically, but out of darkness spiritually as well. He knows that there's darkness in his, in his soul, and he welcomes the light. But on the other hand, the Pharisees insist they can see, not just physically, but also spiritually. They've got it all figured out, they think. And they're too proud to acknowledge the darkness that's within them, the, the darkness in their own soul. And this is why they respond to Jesus with animosity. And here's the reality. 
Very few of us are born blind. In fact, I would venture to guess nobody in this room was born blind, right? But all of us in this room were born blind, spiritually speaking. And so here's the reality. This whole chapter in John's gospel is a parable of the human condition. It's a little microcosm of what's going on with everybody. And there's a choice that each of us must make regarding the light of the world. Will we admit the darkness that's within us, the sin that's within us, and discover the beauty of the light? Or will we deny the darkness that's in us, deny our sin, and be blinded by the light of the world? In order to see, you must acknowledge your blindness. And that's why throughout the Gospels, what do you see? You you see sinners, outcasts, people who are very aware of their, their own need, the darkness in their souls. What do those people do? They flock to Jesus, don't they? They come to Jesus. Yet those who claim they can see, those who think they're okay on the inside, what do they do? They stand far off. They oppose Jesus. They keep their distance. Because the closer you get to the light, the more you see your own darkness. And if you believe in karma, that you get what you deserve in life, then you simply can't admit to your sin because then what do you deserve? Condemnation. Right? See how this works? But if you believe that the world actually operates on a system of grace rather than a system of karma, which Jesus reveals it to be, If you believe that Jesus came in order to be your savior, to lay down his life in your place, on your behalf, if you believe that you are saved by grace, through faith, that is not of your own doing, but it's a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast, if you believe that, then you can have confidence, my friends, to come into the light. Because God loves you just as you are. Yes, you'll be exposed when you step into the light. Yes, your sin will be made evident. But you don't have to be afraid because simultaneously you are loved and accepted just as you are in Christ. In Christ. If you believe in karma... The light is your enemy. But if you believe in grace, the light of the world is your friend. As the band comes back up, I'm going to read familiar verses to you. They won't be on the screen. You know them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. My friends, what are you going to do with the light? What are you going to do with the light? It's polarizing. Are you going to admit your need and find the light beautiful? 
Are you going to say, I'm okay. I'm okay. I've got things together. And find the light blinding. My prayer is that you'll find it beautiful. That you'll be able to admit your sin and simultaneously find abundant grace to meet it, to cover it in Jesus Christ. That you'll find that you are loved just as you are. God doesn't require you to clean up your act to come to him, no. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, not our repentance that leads to God's kindness. The gospel, my friends, is this. The light of the world has come. We're sinners in need of a Savior, and he's come. And he gives eternal life to those who believe, in spite of how jacked up we are. <laughs> Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. How sweet the sound. The saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now am found. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this text and the beauty of it. Thank you that you've given us eyes to see Jesus, the light of the world. Just the fact that we can come to him is evidence of grace. Because on our own, we would run the other way. On our own, we'd be self-righteous, afraid to come into the light. Afraid that we might get what we deserve. But thank you for your love. That you sent your son to die in our place on our behalf so that we can walk in the light and find that we're loved and find that we're forgiven and find that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin and find that we can have fellowship with you. Thank you for the light of the world in whose name we thank you for these things. Amen. Will you stand with me and sing?